You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Sho Baraka. After being educated at Tuskegee University and the University of North Texas, where he studied television, film, anthropology, and public administration, Sho Baraka has spent the last 14 years traveling the world as a recording artist, performer, and culture curator. His overseas work has ranged from leading seminars about race relations in South Africa to establishing artist hubs in Indonesia. He is a co-founder of Fourth District and the AND campaign. He was also an adjunct professor at Wake Forest School of Divinity, as well as an original member of internationally known hip hop consortium 116 Click and record label Reach Records. He lives in Atlanta with his wife Patrice of 17 years, congratulations, and their three children, one daughter and two sons. Today, we're going to discuss his book, he saw that it was good, art, and our creative lives. Welcome. Thank you. That's, the bio's a little old, so it's been 18 years, and I need every I need recognition. For every <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been married 20 years, and congratulations. It Mike. seems seems like it's gone like that. Um, you actually spoke with us at the Lillian Smith Symposium in I believe that was March, and that yeah. that speech yeah. is up online, and it was great. Go ahead. Wanna... No, I was gonna say no. Thank you for for having me. It was a good event. I was I was excited to hear the other the other speakers and to engage with them. It was good. It was a good time, and to hear the heart behind you know the initiative and Lillian Smith. You gave me some literature and some work <laughs> that I can uh, engage in. So I'm excited to not only have this interview, but to learn more about Lillian in the process. Well, I'm here to answer any questions, and <laughs> I'm excited to learn more and to talk, of course, about. He saw that it was good because. When I was reading it, I saw a lot of connections. I was reading it, of course, through the lens of Lillian Smith, partly, and through the lens as a Christian as well. Mm-hmm. So I kind of came at it through two angles. And, you know, while he saw it was good, is a book of essays. I mean, one thing that stuck out to me is you also have pieces of fiction. And Lillian saw herself as an artist. Mm-hmm. And she felt that she was pigeonholed as a race writer because of Strange Fruit and other things, too. Right. But these pieces in your book are allegorical in nature. And yeah. one and one that really stands out to me is where is prudence? Yeah. And when reading that story, two passages from your essays kind of came to mind. And these are quotes from you. Dishonest narratives are employed because when comfort or tradition is threatened, it is not enough to challenge a legitimate political or social stance. Rather, you dehumanize your opposition. Mm. And Lillian Smith really talks about that, the creation of fears and the creation of boogeymen, basically. Yeah. You know? And the other quote that stuck out from me from you too is a lack of rest kills creativity. Mm, yeah, yeah. So can you tell us some about that the allegory where is prudence and just about I guess the art and the fiction in the book and just talk about how it highlights your discussion of our creative lives and a broken world. Yeah. So I think a lot of our so I had a I, I, people ask me to talk about some of my favorite people. And I always usually start off with Dave Chappelle and <laughs> it's not that he's just funny, but I find him to be a philosopher who is hilarious. I can agree with that. 
Yeah. And I think oftentimes artists aren't given the credit they deserve for being thoughtful, nuanced, um, in intelligent individuals. And I think what we do with art is disarming. I think we are attempting to present people who probably wouldn't readily deal with a discussion are position themselves to consume information that comes from a lecture or a sermon in the way that they would with a song, with a poem, with an allegory um, or some, you know, or a novel. And so what we are doing is we're saying, hey, the way you communicate that is cool, but I think I can communicate in a way that that propositions this thing in a more nuanced, complex way, because oftentimes you just say A and B. I think there are lazy creative endeavors, which also dehumanize. And then I think they're a very trite, dare I say, uh, something like, uh, oh, what is it? Ah, I had it on the tip of my head, the book that uh, Pilgrim's Progress. It's like a Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, we get it, but it's it's a very like forced trite kind of way. And I hate to, you know, <laughs> to dump it's, on. It's some... a very straightforward didactic. Approach. Yeah, exactly. Very. And so you can do that. And then you can also be a little bit more, uh, you know, esoteric with it, if you will. And um, I think whereas prudence is my attempt to try to be very clear, but at the same time, bring some mystery, some some mysticism to who are these people? What do they rest it, represent? What is prudence? And what is the resolution of this all? And uh, hopefully the reader feels like they see themselves in one of these characters and that they walk away evaluating their contribution to society. Because the other thing that I am, I try to be very strategic about is I, play, I place these shorts or these, these allegories or these parables in between particular mm -hmm. chapters for a reason. And so you're coming out of a chapter, you're reading this short, and then you're going into a particular chapter, and it's all intentional. Well, I'm really interested in that story. And the thing that caught me was the language. You know, the, the community or the society is, is doing all these things, and they're not being cautious because cautiousness has left them, right? Mm -hmm. And the individuals who I take as angels, I mean, you do say an, an angelic judgment hovered above are labeled as invaders that they're you know pushing back against their way of life and what they're doing and they're basically yeah. saying you're not you're not doing this as you should be doing it right absolutely so, so in, go, no, ahead. go ahead go ahead no you can finish i'm <laughs> sorry i didn't know you i was done i was just gonna say what this reminds me of a little bit of something like Cain, to a certain yeah. extent just, just kind of just kind of not necessarily he does that with the essays but just kind of that format of different yeah. kind of styles so i um yeah i I think of um, how academics posture themselves. I think about how entrepreneurs and developers posture themselves. Think about how the church postures themselves, politicians, et cetera. And there are different people that I, I'm trying to bring to the council of angels. And at the end of the day is what has your contribution done for the betterment of the flourishing society? And we have all these excuses on why we think the things we've done have contributed. But at the end of the day, they're self-serving. They put ourselves as the main benefactor of these, our, our labor. And we never seem to consider 
the wisdom that hovers around us. And if sometimes we often push them out of the conversation. That leads me to another question that you address in your book too. You know, our lives fade away, yet our excellence and memory remain. And you conclude, he saw that it was good with the list of, quote, seven, essential, seven essentials of effective engagement. And yeah. at the end, you write, knowledge and prestige have an expiration date. Excellence lives beyond your death. And yeah. all of this reminds me of Lillian Smith. On her tombstone, she has a quote from The Journey, and that was the book that she wrote after being diagnosed with cancer. And she, it's kind of an existential journey, yeah. you know, her confrontation of death and her confrontation of her mortality. And this is what she has in her tombstone. Death can kill a man. That is all it can do to him. It cannot end his life because of memory. Yeah. And as an artist, as an activist, as a Christian, as a citizen, friend, parent, spouse, and so much more as we all are, you know, we move in different spaces. Yeah. Can you briefly discuss the essentials for effective engagement? And one of those is rest that I mentioned in the other one. Yeah. Can, you, can you discuss those and how they'll help us impact our communities in the world? Yeah. So I wanted to write these essays. I wanted to give fiction. I wanted to give people an imagination, a way to reimagine society, to reconstruct um, things that have been um, detrimental. However, I also wanted to give some very practical tools because I didn't want this to be a practitioner's guideline um, because I wanted this book to, to feel like it, it reached further than just artists and creatives. But I also wanted to give people practical tools. And these are just things that I've found not only help are helpful in my life, but things that I've found that other luminaries before me have lived by and lived with and have been very helpful with them. Is And the first one is, um, one, you don't become an idol or don't create idols. I think oftentimes what we get wrong in the Christian narrative um, or in our Christian work is that we make good things the ultimate thing and that's the essence of an idol like god has told us to use the resources at our disposal for the glory of him and for the betterment of other people but oftentimes we take good things and we make them the ultimate thing so we take things like money management and we say well that's what makes someone godly are we uh we take certain uh social sensibilities like you know uh what is it, the nuclear family, and we make that an idol. And these things are great, and these things have shown to be helpful within society. Um, but these things don't make people righteous. These are tools that help them, uh, I guess you can say, contribute to the flourishing of society. And so, one, don't become an idol. Don't become an obstruction for people to see good things that God has given to us, but don't also don't create dignity and diversity that this are indifference dignity and difference that's one thing that i think our world needs a heavy dose of today um that doesn't mean that we have to be uniform but how do we promote uniform uh, unity without feeling uniformity and how do i see the difference in somebody and still recognize that they are inherently dignified i am to contribute and continue to find them to be dignified and even in those areas where we have strong disagreement to find ways to dignify the disagreeing aspects of our, our relationship. And then, you know, there's seven of them. I'm only gonna to touch on a couple of them. The last one you mentioned is rest. I think here's the tension I find with not only artists, but activists is that you take on a whole, you take on the burdens of the world. 
And if all you do is work, 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 you'll never have time to process. You never have time to, to really think through the things that are that that you're fighting against. And why are these things weighing on you? Why are they weighing on the world? Um, there's a reason why God creates the <laughs> the world and then takes a break. He wants us to reflect not only on the things we create, but wants us to reflect on His goodness. And I uh, mentioned. Gabriel Garcia Marquez's uh, 100 Years of Solitude, because I feel like there's a, a wonderful piece of, <laughs> of uh, I guess you can say, just this wonderful learn, uh, lesson of learning. What am I trying to say? Uh, teachable moment. That's what I'm trying to say. There we go. There's this wonderful teachable moment in that piece of fiction where the city of Macondo is struck with a, a plague of insomnia. And they find this to be a good thing because, well, since we can't sleep, now what we'll do is just work. But what happens is, to your Lillian Smith point, what happens is, is they begin to lose their memory. And we know memory is effective, not only for the purposes of, of, of nostalgia, but it helps us to move forward because we know what not to do because we see how it wasn't effective in the past, but also we remember what was good and we try to recapitulate those things. But not only that, if all we do is work and we don't rest, then we forget how to dream. And this is another connection to Lillian Smith, yeah. right? And when you forget how to dream, when you lose your memory and all you do is work, 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 then you're gonna, you're gonna create some bad things. You're gonna create bad systems, bad ideas, bad stories, and you're gonna impact the world in a way that is gonna be detrimental. And so rest is important, it's paramount for people to sit back and to dream again. If we're always ascending, then what we're doing is we're living on the apex where nothing grows. Things grow in the valley. So you have to descend to live amongst the valley to do life. And I feel like that's where the real art and that's where the real life is, is, is blossoming in the valley. And there's two things there that stuck out to me. And going back to rest real quick before I go over to the other one, you talk in the book because you're very much involved in a bunch of different endeavors. And you talk about you personally removing yourself from social media, from these spaces to rest. Yeah. Can you talk about that just a minute and kind of the impact and the importance of that for, for yeah. you, I guess, as a creative? Yeah, for me, one of the greatest fears an artist can have is irrelevance because, you, you know, especially today where there's no real machines that, that dictate whether an artist can be successful because people um, can be connected to subcultures. You can find yourself reaching audiences without being signed to a label without having these grand institutions who once were gatekeepers dictate your fame or not. However, even in that, the, the principle of practice is to always put out content, put out content. Don't let the people forget who you are, that you're, you know, that you're around. Let, but my thing is, is I'd rather trust <laughs> the Lord than trust my relevance. And I feel like, Oftentimes, when an artist is consistently trying to be present, their art or their music or their writing becomes irrelevant because you're trying to force things, if that makes sense. Like you're constantly trying to be present and you've never stepped away to listen to the voices that are trying to communicate to you so that you can create good work. And for me, I'd say, you know what, there are seasons in which I want to be a rapper. There are seasons in which I want to write. There are seasons in which I need to really focus on being a advocate for other people. 
And even in those moments and those seasons when I'm moving and transitioning from, you know, as a polymath, if you will, I feel like I'm being inspired because in my activism, I'm inspired to write. Right. In my activism, I'm inspired to think about music concepts. In my music, I'm thinking about how does this how does this song advocate for people on the margins? And so it's not that I'm just being I'm being silent and I'm and I'm completely devoid of, of, of inspiration. What's happening is, is I'm not focusing on trying to produce a product that people can consume. And I'm growing in these times. And then when it's time to ascend the hill, I'll do that. Right. And you mentioned the other thing that stuck out to me, too, was you mentioned about artists and creatives. And you mentioned the book, not wanting to be specifically towards artists, like mu musicians, painters, or whatever. So when you're thinking about creatives, you know, I'm a musician. I am a writer, I would say too, but that's not the only form of creation because you mentioned your social, your social justice activi activism as well. Yeah. So even as a teacher, as a scientist, yeah. you know, our creations, no matter what they are, you know, art, music, teaching i mean being in front of a classroom is being creative i mean you're yes, thinking on your feet doing all the things you're performing you're performing you know? but none of that you're creating something you're creating right. students you're creating citizens that can go into the world and contribute in a way and all of these things all of our creations are informed by a myriad of factors absolutely and this is a lot this is a discussion that's going on a lot in the news lately but this is what you write you say we are shaped by our stories and we are given our stories by our tribes. There are no blank slates. And for the longest time, I, I would have disagreed with you because I've been thinking about this a lot, especially mm -hmm. with, with children. I would have disagreed with you about the non-existence of blank slates. Mm -hmm. But now I see that the blank slate, if it exists at all, only exists for a fleeting moment when we're born. You know, before yeah. culture sleeps in. And I would even say before we're born, because we're still being able to hear the outside world, you know? Yeah. Um, right. So part of our growth involves, as you put it, questioning the stories we were given about ourselves, about the world, about God. And Lillian Smith talks about this questioning, specifically in relation to art. You know, in, in The Artist in the Dream, which was published in Phylon, she writes, we who write know, though we may not confess it, that always we have held in our minds and hearts since childhood, a little script that we are forever revising. Mm -hmm. So we all go through revision and I go through revision. I mean, if I knew the things that I knew now, when I was like in my twenties, it would have been totally different. Right. And, and he saw that it was good. You explore revision. So can, can you talk about this a little bit, our questioning specifically and revision within our own lives? Cause you talked about a minute ago, when you're an activist, you're listening and informs your music. Yes. When you're rapping and a musician, the activism informs that, right? Yeah. But yeah. then there's there's also the other discussion. I, I didn't mean to cut off, but there's also one more discussion too, where you're talking about what's omitted in our yeah. stories and our education, our lessons. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's a um, there's a transmission of ideas and stories from all different aspects of life. Your family, your tribes, which is you know the your cultural surroundings, but then there's media that tells stories mm -hmm. about who you are. I talk about in my book, having a, a daughter uh, and she's around the age of seven, I think. And you can't live in a household that is more proud of being black than my family. Mm -hmm. in my house. And we would tell my daughter how beautiful she was. And we would put in front of her images that we thought would affirm her identity, not only as a black woman, 
uh, as a black person, but as a black young girl. However, we noticed that we couldn't necessarily compete with Disney and Nickelodeon and you know all the different popular cultural images that came towards her. And then at some point she started to this, I remember she said she didn't like her skin and her hair. And that just really, that broke us in some way. Not that we were doing a, a, a bad job, but that we see the impact of stories and how they can actually permeate a person's identity. And so you think about that on a larger scale, how there are people in their 20s and their 30s informed by something, whether good or bad. Because I talk about the beauty of the gold of stories. And I talk about it in chapter one, how my mother told me I look good in red. And to this day, yeah. I love the color red. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so there's um, there's this duality, this, this, uh, this, this uh, I guess you can say this golden shadow, as I like to communicate in the book, about storytelling. And sometimes we don't know about the detrimental dormant stories that lie in us that come out, right? The way that you interact with somebody who is of a different racial background than you is probably informed by the way that you had an interaction with somebody in elementary school and it didn't go well. And so now you're, you're assessing this individual by the way you had this interaction back in the day, or your parents said some things about right. people. So therefore this is, this is shaping you. You've seen films or there are perpetuations of, of, of tropes throughout Hollywood that made you think, oh, white Southerners are this way. And so ultimately, I think what we have to do is reassess not only the stories that we enjoy, uh, we, we dislike, but the stories we enjoy uh, about people about society and about ourselves um and i think this is utterly important especially within the black context because i think about slavery and i talk about this in my song kanye west i wrote about it in the book is uh who are we in the context of american history and oftentimes the stories of oppression though they may be they may be true and accurate that's not all who we are right and if we only talk about the oppressive parts of our our, our history then that informs who I love, that informs how I believe about what I believe about myself, what I believe about what I can do and I can achieve in this nation. And I think oftentimes oppression becomes our religion and not, you know, love and 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 uh, and reconciliation. And therefore you hold these grudges that I think they're insurmountable. And I don't come from a tradition that believed that oppression was insurmountable because they sang songs in the midst of that oppression that believed not only do I believe in the liberation now, but I believe in a greater liberation in the future. Right. And there's a lot that you said there again that, that stands out with me. I think of my own son. And of course, we're in a different, I'm in a different, he's in a different household. He's in a white household. And as much as we try and, you know, shape him within kind of our concepts of, of social justice and everything like that. Some of the comments he makes as an eight-year-old, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think about that and our daughter's 14, kind of a little bit different. So the ways that we can't control what all gets into our kids from one, if we're parents, but yeah. then also the ways that our parents can control what gets into us, even if they yeah. tried. Yeah. I think that's important. That's something that Lillian Smith, I think, really noticed too, and that she really tried to do with the camp is try to break down she uses the term segregation not just in regards to jim crow she says things that segregate us from ourselves is kind of how she used that image of the wall and that's what those things do oh absolutely that's real like yeah i mean many sociologists and and psychiatrists talked about how the detriments of racism i mean people still i've read a recent study about how the effects of 
racial trauma affects babies in the womb, right? Yeah. Uh, and so you think about the segregation, not only the corporeal, but the cognitive and how people think about themselves as the boys would talk about this double consciousness. So now we have to not only see and feel the segregation that's on our walls and these signs that are in front of restaurants, but I also got to know it mentally, like when I went walk into particular spaces. And what I'm saying is that's ever present. It's almost ubiquitous in this time. People still feel that to today. However, we have the power or we are empowered better yet to de to destroy those constructs. And I believe that I walk with that particular authority. And I think it behooves us and benefits us to tell not only new different narratives to the masses, but narratives to ourselves that help us to fight through the daily apathies that the world has presented to us. Right, because I mean, this is a thing, like we're about the same age and me growing up as a white Southerner, things I still have to cognitively think about and assess within my own daily life, like we all do, you know? And like I said, I think that's what Smith is really dealing with yeah. too as a white Southern woman is she's exploring these things, addressing white Southerners and whites nationally and internationally too, but she's saying, that I struggle with this too. Yeah. You know, and I think that it's a lifelong process. And she's not, yeah, if we're all honest, we all have beliefs and ideas that, and this is, I think this is the, the, the deficiency within today's political posturing is this idea that we can shut off people, cancel people without giving them the type of grace that we need or deserve ourselves. And, I know I grew up in a racist household. <laughs> I know there's no like there's no debating that, um, and it 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 impacted me up until about college. Like I know like the way that I view Asian people, the way the way that I viewed Southern whites, the way that I viewed Indian people, were unhealthy, and it didn't change until I really had a grasp of what it means to be forgiven, to forgive the gospel, but also until I got into close proximity with those people in ways that wasn't just uh, violent, if you will. Yeah. And when I got, in, because most of those times when I were around people who were different than me racially, and that uh, it was because there was either some sort of gang tension, racial tension at school or, uh, uh, or the, 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 the healthy relationships were around sports because we had some common interest. Um, and we saw each other for the performance that we gave, not for the humanity. Oh, but then, but then even sports, I mean, sports breaks down all walls, but then I think back to Drew Brees, who I'm a Saints fan. <laughs> I love the Saints. And, and, and his comments and, and what kills me with that, not just his comments, but he shares a birthday with Martin Luther King and Ernest Gaines. And I'm like, <laughs> come on. So. Gaines and my man MLK. Exactly. I mean, I mean we're, we're a couple of days away because I'm the 10th. So, uh, <laughs> now, but Drew, yeah. And so, to speak to your point, um, do we have the currency, the social currency to allow Drew Brees to say something ridiculous and say, you know what, rather than shutting you completely off? let's have conversations on why we feel like that that view is is unhealthy or unhelpful and i don't know if we are we have that type of patience or social currency today that is allowing people to come to the table and 
you know, Henry Nouwen, the uh, Catholic theologian says that um, hospitality is not forcing change to happen, but it's creating a space where change can possibly happen. Butchered it a little bit, but are we creating a hospitable space for people to come and say ridiculous things and allow for change and a, and a paradigm shift to happen? And I think there's a, there's a deficiency in that today. Well, I think that reminds me too, and I'm not necessarily saying that he's inhospitable. I'm not saying he's inhospitable. It reminds me of Jeremy Courtney and the more I learn about preemptive love and mm -hmm. kind of their, you know, their program, reading his story, you okay. know, about sitting and learning from people. You know, he, he went to the, he went to, I think, Turkey, right, as a, as a missionary and kind of separated from the, from the missionary, you know, I don't know if it's Southern Baptist or whatever, but separated from that and actually went into Iraq and um, worked with refugees and yeah. everything. So his story is really inspiring me. And that reminds me of some of the things you were talking about in here about missionaries and kind of, it's really brief, but the ways that missionaries come in are like, well, this is the, the right way, right? This is the Western right. or the white way. And Lillian Smith talks about that. When she was in China, she noticed that she was in China for three years from 1923 to about 1925, give or take. And she went there to teach at the Methodist school. Her brother-in-law was a missionary and she went in as a Methodist missionary, taught, taught music at the school. And what she says is, I saw what the British were doing to the Chinese during colonialism as the same thing that was happening in the South with Jim Crow, with, with whites and African-Americans. And she said, I would see these Christian missionaries go to the swimming pools and go to the vacations and deny the Chinese who they were there to actually, you know, mission to deny them access or deny them their humanity, basically. Yeah. That's, you know, man. Uh, I know. Just, that's things. That's things. I've been, I've been in other countries and I've spoken to missionaries in other countries. And I won't say it was that absurd, but I've seen similar things that made me, so it could be anything from you're a missionary community, but you're gated. Right. Yeah. Like, hmm. That that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> or you have a school like you're a missionary, but you have a school for all the expatriates. Like you know, uh, and I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, how how are you supposed to impact? Yeah. Like if you're a missionary, your kids should be going to school with the indigenous community. Like if you're a missionary, you should be living amongst the people, speaking the language. You don't. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that that's one of the things with travel too. You know, Lillian Smith talks about, and one of my favorite quotes from her is she says in the journey that I'm paraphrasing here, no matter where we go, whether it's main street or across the world, the giants and pygmies of belief follow us, telling us to look this way and that, you know, mm -hmm. pulling us and holding yeah. us back. Yeah. So you have to be open to that. You know, I, I, like I said, I put this even in with travel because, you know, we spent a year in Norway on a Fulbright and our kids were fully immersed in, in the school. Unfortunately, I didn't learn Norwegian and my son didn't really pick it up, but my daughter did, right? And one of her best friends is Norwegian. Her parents are from Burundi and somewhere else. Okay. And it's, it's really interesting to hear kind of that, dis that discussion. That's a whole other discussion. But, you know, if I didn't if I had the beliefs that I had, you know, I went into Norway thinking, hey, they're the perfect society, right? Right, right, right? You know, all this stuff. But then even before getting there, learning the issues they have there, like her friend 
she's very she's dark skinned like i said her, her mom's her one of her parents is from burundi one's from an, another african country and people there norwegians there she speaks norwegian all of that ask her you know why don't you go back to your own country can you speak norwegian all the stuff that happens here right yeah and that's that was a tangent but the key no, is no, it, yeah all these things follow us yeah they do they do you i think it was uh anna julia cooper or maybe alexander crummel but he talked about how no matter like as a black as a black man or a black woman in this country no matter where you go you bring history with you into the room right and um, that is a reality like there how much that history weighs on you if it's a burden or if it's a if it's an anchor, you know, it's a different issue. But the reality is, is somebody is thinking something about you or you're thinking something about the room because of what you've brought in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, the beauty is that it could be a cultural exchange, like what true missionary work should be. It's not, it shouldn't be the lording and the domineering. It should be a cultural exchange. Or it could be a situation where, you know, you are learning uh, about one another and, uh, and and blessing one another and people are, are dignifying one another in this difference and you can learn. But some people take it as an opportunity to dominate and to Lord and to extract things from particular cultures that they don't think are beneficial. And that's where that's where the assimilation and the dangerous assimilation of, of missionary work happens and is scary. Yeah, like I said, whole other conversations probably for multiple, yeah. multiple podcasts. So let's end with this. You mentioned Anna Julia Cooper. You mentioned Cromwell there. You you littered this book with African American activists and writers, and you know Mariah Stewart, I think, and others. Use David Walker, which I'm I'm so happy about. More people should read David Walker's Appeal. Oh, yeah, I think, and I, I always start my early American lit classes with David Walker and Thomas Jefferson. I'm like. <laughs> here's what walker says about jefferson here's what jefferson says that walker's responding to and it, it totally upends my students because a lot of them are excited to read jefferson right because they never read him yeah. so let's just end with this can you tell us a couple of authors from i would say the 19th century so let's just keep it that century okay that the people should read who would you suggest like i said you mentioned a lot of them okay the 19th century yeah um, or or 19th or earlier Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, Frederick Douglass, you, um, so. Everybody should read What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. <laughs> yeah, but uh, none of that, but yes, like the beautiful thing is he, he, uh, he I mean, there's so many lectures, there's so mm-hmm. much like outside of, you know, the slave narrative and the, uh, what is the Fourth of July to a slave? There's just, so much literature out there on him and, and this is kind of like what bugs me about luminaries like frederick Douglass or uh, malcolm x people read like the one book and they think that that's they have a grasp on that person people right. evolve like baldwin baldwin started off one way or du bois started off one way and ended a different way you know and so these people uh they they have they they grow and they mature or they change their minds on issues and so so um I would definitely say, man, this is hard because I'm trying. To, <laughs> I would say Douglas is 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 definitely a person that I think uh, some of these folks kind of blend between the 19th and the 20th. That's fine. But yeah, I would say. Uh, I mean, Dunbar is that case. 
Yeah, Dunbar. Oh, uh, James Weldon Johnson. Um, I think he was more 20th century. I'm trying to look at my some of my library around here. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you're, I'm starting yeah. to think too. I wasn't expecting to ask this question, and I'm thinking Aubrey Allison Whitman. I mean, I used him for my dissertation, yeah. and he deals with you know the 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 Maroons who ran away from Georgia to join up with the Seminole. Right? He writes about these yeah. interactions between formerly enslaved indigenous and white slave owners, right? And different and different things. Um, and he was right before Paul Lawrence Dunbar. You mentioned there talking about Baldwin Douglas and, and all of these authors and activists who grow and who change as they go along. And I think that's a good place to end it because like I said, we think about revision and we think about what we come into the world with. And you talked about that and I've talked about that a little bit with myself, but then how much we grow and revise ourselves and our narratives as we go along. So I think that's a great place to end it, thinking about how we need to do that. So is there anything you want to plug apart from he saw that it was good before we head out? No, I mean, hey, if, you know, you want to sometimes I'm, I'm a very boring follow on social media, but sometimes I can be very entertaining. So I would say follow me at uh, Amisho Baraka on all platforms as A-M-I-S-H-O-B-A-R-A-K-A. And hopefully the book is a blessing to you. And hopefully it's not only informing or informative, but it's also entertaining. So thank you for having me. Thank you for um, being here. And it was a good conversation. Every time I get a chance to talk to you, not only is it do I feel like I, I get to dive into some things I don't dive into with other conversations, but I feel like I learn a lot talking to you. Just your depth of literature and your appreciation of history is always compelling. Well, it goes both ways. Make sure to follow him at Amisho Baraka, like you said, on all social media accounts. And stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.